This is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, Censor. Enjoy! But specifically thinking about contro- these, these efforts to control ideas, these efforts to control the flow of information, these efforts, these, these conflicts between generations and elements of society are all central issues to the movie. Yeah, censor. That we have watched. <laughs> which is 2021's Censor by Welsh uh, first-time feature director Prano Bailey Bond. Um, Starring Neve Algar. Uh, I had my wife ask her Irish friends how to say that mm. name. And, uh, and several other British character actors that you will recognize if you have watched a lot of British TV. Is this the second Welsh movie that we've watched? Uh, yeah, because um, The Canal was Welsh-Irish. Yeah, yeah. And this is Prano Bailey Bond is Welsh and Neve Algar is Irish. So mm. same so Welsh-Irish. Yeah. And there, yeah. there is a little bit of like quality, like similarities in quality to between the two movies. There's a that uh, the same theme of individual, like the main character, sort of their psychological state being unknown to them, you know, in the same way. Uh, yeah. What would you call that? That's that's kind of a common that that appears in horror a lot, right? I tend to think of it as like the it's the turning of the screw thing. Mm. The um Henry James story, The Turning of the Screw, which, you know, is a uh, one of those like Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and yeah. you know, one of, it's in those kind of foundations of modern horror and and um for listeners, I guess the gist of The Turning of the Screw is it's about a if you saw the Netflix series Haunting of Bly Manor, it's that. Um, that was the turning of the screw done by Mike Flanagan, who at some point we'll probably talk about because I think he's great. Um, but yeah, it's basically, you know, a, a governess, uh, au pair type situation with some children in a old manor and there's spooky things going on and there's always the question of, you know, is this the, that governess sort of going insane or are these things really happening and yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. The, it's the turning of the screw thing basically well, it's it's kind of an it's an effective horror thing obviously because probably at some point in everyone's life you come to this uh like this question of can I trust my own senses or something? Can I trust what I'm thinking? You know, and I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's an ins- like uh, how would you call it? I don't think that's a mentally. I don't think you, it means you're mentally ill or anything. You know, I don't think it's a major mental ailment. I think it's a probably a common one. It's like uh, the common cold of mental ailments or something. You know, every once in a while you'll get this sort of doubt of your own. Like, am I with it? <laughs> you know, am I like doing this correctly? And it could be as mild as like, did I fuck that up? Did I not know that I was doing that the wrong way? I might not have got it. And then it could be more extreme. Like, I don't, I don't feel safe in my mind right now. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really relatable thing. And it is. I, that's what I think makes it pretty effective in horror movies like this when 
it's like, oh shit, like I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to find out that I lost my mind or something, you know? Yeah. I never want to feel insane or, uh, you know, in some way, like it's, it can be terrifying. No, that is, um, I mean, maybe I'm like confessing too much, but my most persistent, uh, my most persistent fear outside of like, you know, really fantastical things has always been that at something that at some point I'm going to get committed. Yeah, right. No, that something is going to happen that's going to result in yeah, like me being determined, unfit to make decisions for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I sh- I share that too. I share that too. Well, my number one fear is is that I'm going to shit my pants in yoga class because <laughs> like, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> But number two, number two fear is like, will I lose my mind and somehow be committed? You know, and then will that be related? Yeah, well, it might be related. You don't know. (laughs) That's the catalyst. It's in in no specific order. Those those right, they could right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or as I say sometimes, like the last straw isn't necessarily the heaviest straw. So the shitting your pants in yoga class might just be the the last straw in a. A lifetime yeah. of slowly yeah. going insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, no, it, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the thinking about kind of, am I going crazy or, or is this real is, is a very, it is a very reasonable thing, I think. Like, it, it, it offers sort of a reasonable entry point into horror stories a lot of the time because I'm thinking both as, like, just from a storytelling sort of suspension of disbelief type angle that if you have a story where something that really looks like a ghost, everybody just says, oh yeah, that's the ghost. That it's a little bit like, oh, okay. okay so then I guess, what do we do about the ghost? Yeah. Like, I don't know. We get rid of it or we yeah. leave it alone yeah, it it takes out a lot of the tension from a storytelling aspect, and then from a suspension of disbelief angle. You know, we generally live in a world where if you say there's a ghost in that house, most people are going to say, "No, there isn't." Yeah, and you're going to have to say, "No, there's totally a ghost in that house because of this and this and this." So, you know, the idea that you would have a character that you'd have characters in a story who just unquestioningly say, "Yep, ghosts, totally." is a disconnect from our sort of general existence in society. And, and I think sometimes that can that could defeat a suspension of disbelief situation where people are like, why is everybody in this story just accepting the supernatural stuff? Yeah. Unquestioningly. But beyond that, I don't have the quote in front of me and the book is over there and I don't want to take the time finding the exact quote, but there's a thing that Arthur Mackin, so another one of those very... Uh, foundational horror and weird fiction authors said um, about it's in the white people. So one of his best, most beloved stories um, where two characters are talking about the nature of evil. And one of them is kind of, you know, I don't think you really know what evil is. He's like, okay, fine. Well then enlighten me. He's like, well, imagine if your pet just started talking to you, speaking human language in a normal a- with a normal accent, 
Imagine if you went outside and the flowers in your garden just sang a little song. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I think that, like, think about those things. Think about how you would really feel in those moments. And then you have some sense of understanding what evil is. It's basically that. Mm. And um, I thought about that. I thought about that a lot because that's a really interesting sort of not quite definition, but example of evil. How would that be like evil? That would be like to me towards psychosis or something. The character in the Mackin story, it basically means that because there's, yeah, this is dimly remembered because I was talking to Stephen Warwick about this since he wrote that book about evil. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, Arthur Mackin has an interesting definition of evil. Um, but because he says something about like, that basically evil doesn't have as much to do with morals as you think it does or yeah. with like ethics that he's like basically a lot of people who do things that we would call crimes or that we would really dislike are not necessarily doing evil acts. They're doing illegal things. They're yeah. doing whatever, but that there's not necessarily evil in killing. Yeah. Because right. There's all different ways that ending an organism's life, there's all kinds of contexts, food, survival, defense, I don't know, yeah, things right. like that. And that's not even just regarding like uh, the uh, uh, like euthanasia as an actual peaceful option. Exactly. Yeah, yeah mercy killings, mercy, euthanasia. Yeah. Like there's, so even if you're, yeah, so something, he basically is like, I think you'll find that that the people you think of, murderers, thieves, liars or whatever aren't nearly as representative of evil as you think they are. Yeah. And that this character is sort of presenting evil as like fundamental wrongness. Okay. Yeah. Like an existential wrongness. Yeah. That something is like wrong with the world. Yeah. That the laws of the world as you understand them have been broken. Yeah. And that the act of breaking those laws is evil. That, it's like a murder mm. is a thing within the world. It's a bad thing. Yeah. We don't like it, yeah. but it is a thing. Whereas the the dandelions singing a little song yeah. is not in the laws of the world. Right, right, right. That would that would be Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. Um which is interesting. Like I had a moment the other day where dandelions started talking to me. No. <laughs> So, I mean, William so Blake did. Strange. He had a lot of, yeah. <laughs> strange that you bring this up. No, um, but I had this moment of walking with my dog the other day, and I realized that I talk to my dog. Not, I mean, I do talk out loud just when I'm walking my dog, like, hey, Mac, it's a fucking you know, sunny day out, you know, whatever. But actual communication, like language with dogs that I didn't know about before owning a dog. So I talk to my dog, not verbally, but... I communicate with my dog in this deep way that now makes a ton of sense. And I'm very comfortable with, like I've become a little bit more fluent in dog language, you know? And I realize that most animals have a language. I, I mean, this is, it's not like, this isn't crazy to say I, I, people, most people would accept this, you know, but there are these realizations sometimes where like the world that I know of as one thing shifts. And then if I try to use language to describe that to someone who's not aware of that, it starts to sound kind of crazy or weird, you know? Like, oh yeah, dude, I talk to animals all the time. 
the people would be like, well, first of all, no, you don't, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I do if I know their language, if like, I'm like a, if I live in the wilderness and I'm like a avid trapper or something, right. My, yeah, my language with the, with the, uh, with the lang- uh, with animals and with nature, with the environment of that area is totally different than if I live in, you know, downtown Chicago or whatever. Yeah. But we do sometimes have this uh, quick to judgment, like, oh, I don't like the way that person is talking. You know, like, I don't like the way that they handle their existence. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then relate it to me. Like they they talk to animals. Like first of all, that's bullshit. I don't believe that. And then we we're very right. quick to judge it, and and assess it on some sort of mental level, as if we we understand, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it makes me think. Like I sort of I'm jokingly said when you were like, yeah, the flowers sang a little song. It was oh, William Blake saw that, but William Blake's thing was was like being, um. He got into an argument with a thistle uh-huh. that was that was also an old a little old man. And Blake talks about this in in terms of his like double vision. Mm-hmm. That's one of his things and then this turns into coil lyrics, you know, yeah. keep us from single vision and and all that. But that Blake's Blake of course doesn't explain this cuz he wasn't given to explaining himself, but in the wonderful John Higgs William Blake versus the world book that I brought up way back on the first episode of this. Um, the notion of, of Blake's double vision thing is basically talk. It's sort of explained as like a departure from literalism that uh, Blake wasn't saying I was standing in a field and there was a little fucking guy and he was like, fuck you, Will. <laughs> and I was like, no, fuck you. And he was like, ah, I'm going to get you. And whatever. Like, that William Blake was like, yes, I know that it's a thistle, but it's also a little old man. Mm-hmm. And that the danger with this stuff is when double vision collapses into single vision. Mm-hmm. And Blake would talk about that. He often, you know, because Blake had a lot of issues with Isaac Newton. So he would talk about that as Newton's sleep and the the whatever folly of single vision that, which would be like material, uh, material literalism. Mm. The like, no, there's no old man. The thing that's going on in your imaginative faculties is not real. There is only the physical thistle. Yeah. And the physical human being who is having a chemical hallucination of an old man. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. But he was equally cautious of, or maybe I shouldn't make Blake out to be what I want him to be, but what I would say Mm. is that you should also be equally conscious of single vision of the entirely metaphorical type, Mm. which is that the thistle stops existing and only the old man does. Yeah, right. And I think that, because that basically that way lies monsters, parentheses, QAnon. is like, that's how you end up in conspiratorial literalism land. Yeah. Which is of saying, like, you have also lost double vision. Yeah. You've also fallen into the point where you're like, no, this isn't an interesting story. This isn't something going on imaginatively. This is, there is literally a chopper following me down the street. Yeah. Literally owned by some billionaire who literally is yeah. hunting me. Right. <laughs> and whatever. Yeah, so double vi- uh, double vision is... Uh, 
balanced vision. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's being able to, and really, I and I think even in explaining it that way, even that exp- explanation can be collapsed into a single vision explanation a little bit too easily because it sounds like what I'm saying is. Okay, so Blake knew that the real thing was the thistle and not the old man, yeah. and that the old man was a colorful imaginary. I'm like, no, they're both real. Mm. That's the deal. They're both real. Not one is 60% real and the other is 40%. They are both real. They are both yeah. 100% real. Because that makes me think of like what the influence of real is, right? So if uh, if the old man has more of an impact on him, which creates more change in his life, which then, uh, you know, ripples out in his actions, then that has a more real impact, you know, sure. rather yeah. than just seeing a thistle and being like, Hey, yeah, cool. And then moving on. Yeah. So it, it's, it's dependent upon how we judge realness. And if, uh, imagination creates more like, so for instance, if you take a, the, old man route and pure imagination route and that affects you to a higher degree and then you go out and actually make physical changes in the world based on that then that had a more real change on the world than you possibly could have done of just just acknowledging it as some sort of inanimate you know thistle even though a thistle you know is a plant but uh treating it non-sentient non-sentient yeah just treating it literally and then having no imagination and making no changes in the world <laughs> is it yeah. as real then you know yeah yeah and so that's like this might be a good illustration of that that uh why we think that there is some possibility that in the future we will get committed yeah right <laughs> <laughs> to right. anyone uh suffering through us talking about this and going oh no <laughs> well, <laughs> why I, did i subscribe yeah. to this well i can see that like um, with people like so going like to the idea of the movie in Censor where she's she thinks that she has a grip on what's happening to her. She thinks she has a real sort of idea of what's happening uh morally too. She's like doing the right thing in her mind. She's actually standing up and making a change and doing all of this stuff. But in actuality and other people's reality She's the monster. Yeah. She's making so I mean there's uh that's an interesting if if it's not double vision on just her part, it's two sets of vision. Two sets mm-hmm. two sets of single vision. Her single vision is that she's liberating um liberating people from tyranny, saving her sister um from the clutches of evil. But then from everybody else's standpoint, she's the one who's actually manufacturing the evil. Yeah. And she's producing these terrible things. Uh, yeah, yeah. In your mind, you the biggest fear is, is not having the real sense of the world. I'm yeah. I'm not real. I'm not doing what's real, and that freaks you out. And so that's why people may tend to towards literate like the most literal literal interpretations of things right whether those are like the sort of like religious literalism yeah. material literalism um conspiracy literalism like yeah any form of 
like, no, there's only one. Yeah. Because I do feel like the the higher level of, you know, there's this one level of double vision, which is, you know, seeing to seeing the thistle and the old man, and they're both real, but it's like a higher level of double vision is feels almost like the realization that I'm looking at something and something is looking at me. Mm. That I am not the subject and it is the object or you yeah. know, in this clear, clearly defined way, but that it's like, yeah, I see you and you see me. Yeah. And I feel like the loss of that is the other route to insanity. That's yeah. the other single vision yeah. that leads to insanity is because that gets into the solipsism thing that gets into the, you know, and that's generally where all these things end up is, you know, I'm seeing this thing and it, this this has to be real. And people around you say, we're not seeing it. We're not experiencing this. And so then you decide, well, you guys have to be 100% wrong. Yeah. That I'm the only one who knows the truth. I'm yeah. the only one who sees this. And now that means that I am, what I am experiencing has become 100% correct. Yeah you are 100% incorrect. Or the flip of that, oh, you guys are probably right. I'm not experiencing anything, which then leads to, well, now you've just repressed. You were experiencing something. Yeah. And now you're just repressing it because nobody else shares your consensus or something yeah. like that. And that's another route to, yeah. that's single vision and another route to insanity. Yeah, yeah. But even in my own experiences, I've had great times inducing small amounts of what would you call this I, like a, a imaginative uh non-literal <laughs> non-liter oh, literalism yeah. or something like i've had moments at the height of like experiments with um you know ritual or what have you i've pushed my mind into places which were kind of strange where you you do get the sense like oh something is watching me or something and it almost seems kind of paranoid mm -hmm. and in my mind I'm in that moment when that stuff happens I get you get a little bit afraid especially when it happens for the first time you're like what am I doing am I separating myself from the literal world am I not uh am I am I losing my grip you know but it's also kind of exciting in a creative sense it's like it it's freeing in that mm -hmm. it presents that double vision and it allows you to have that other side of the vision that you didn't know was available. But the, what's interesting about it for me is then I go through periods of time where I don't practice it. And I just sort of like, it's like, uh, like I'm not going to the gym, you know? Right. And so I, I lose the muscle in some way. And then I become way more literal again. And, mm -hmm. and that I almost catch like an amnesia of that moment of what it, what it was. Oh, remember those times when those weird sensations happened in your mind? And then it's just like a memory, but I, 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 I do have a fondness of those memories. <laughs> like, so I kind of enjoy inducing some of that sometimes, you know, um, yeah. Whether or not I, how people do that, I only know my own methods, which I, I do enjoy. I enjoy that. So little bits of psychosis <laughs> when they're controlled and they're sort of used through like uh, applied through imagination and art yeah is like a, a really kind of fun therapeutic thing for me personally you know i don't know oh, i agree yeah. yeah 
I don't know how I people would take that. <laughs> I don't know how people would understand, but <laughs> it's it's available. Do what you will with that. Information. Yeah, um, that's a kind of good tie, like back into the the sort of events of the movie specifically, because um, this idea of sort of control and the relinquish relinquishing of control. Yeah. So so censor uh brief rundown is about a young woman played by Neve Alger who is uh a member of the British censorship board during the Video Nasties era that we talked about in the last episode. And uh it follows her experience of watching you know, a number of these infamous movies and then discovering in one of them uh, what is basically the playing out of a childhood trauma of her own. Her her younger sister went missing when they were girls. It's unsolved. It's haunted her for the last however many years. And what she's seeing in this one video nasty is basically that, uh, with actresses who look like her and her sister with an eerie level of similarity. And this experience is extremely destabilizing to her and sets her off on a kind of path to discover who made this movie, who are these actresses, what are the circumstances under which this movie got uh, made, and, you know, is this an indication that my sister is in fact still alive and is one of these actresses. Is this a clue to someone who abducted her? You know, these, these are the sorts of questions that then she explores over the next, it's a very tight 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 80 and 89 minutes. It's a very well-paced movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it does generally, um, yeah, it follows that kind of, sort of detective line of, you know, okay, we have a, an eminently sane, upstanding, very controlled character. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, dressed very primly. She's got her pens and her notebook all in order, and she's a part of an organization that is in charge of upholding the moral order of Britain, yeah. of media, and protecting, as we've talked about in the last episode, you know, protecting the children from this moral degradation from evil from these these horrible movies yeah and then she begins this process in a still fairly you know a saying oh i think i this is mysterious but i found a clue to my sister's disappearance and then as the movie progresses that grip on sanity starts to unravel and uh it, it and then be lost entirely and um I say that that what you were saying before I gave that summary was a good sort of transition back into into movie specific stuff is in in terms of like thinking about Neve Alger's character as this like personification of total control. Yeah. That every part of of her existence in the world is managed. Mm, yeah. And that what you're talking about is, a, and that then what she experiences as the movie goes on is kind of a flip, single, you know, double, single vision style, as we've been talking about, into total chaos. Yeah. She goes from total order to total disorder. Yeah. 
it's and what you were describing is a more as a more healthy what art can do what magic can do these sorts of things is a more managed not right. total disorder exactly so like if you if you live in a repressed state with one aspect of your life if you completely repress which which she was doing she was repressing a trauma that she had that she couldn't handle uh, and that we don't really find, we don't really know about at the beginning. We don't know why she's, she just seems like the best at her job, you know? And, and we find out that it's, she's the best because it, she takes it so seriously that she's, she's a sensor to fight against wrongdoing because she's trying to prevent this uh, childhood trauma event from happening, uh, you know, again. And so she's got this hard grip on it. Um, but because of that, because of that repression, it just, like you said, sends her in the exact opposite direction, you know? Yeah. And that it's like she has, she and the other sensors have this, even though she is certainly the most zealous of the sensors shown, several of the others are, are more sort of cynical, more like, eh, it's just what we do for a living. Yeah. Some of them take, you know, a, a more... Uh, make very valid points about uh, is this really what we should be worrying about? Don't we have real problems in society <laughs> that the government could be spending this money on? Like, yeah, right. This surely this can't be the most important thing we're doing. Yeah. But um, so she's definitely the most the most uh, fervently committed to the moral rectitude of what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that you have this 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 organization centered on. Um, taking pieces of art, taking or, or or entertainment, because you know some of even though we're people who like schlocky exploitation movies or something, some of them are definitely better classed as entertainment than as art. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, you have this organization that's that's controlling, that's, that's attempting to control that stuff that sees in movies like The Driller Killer or The Beyond or House by the Cemetery or whatever sees these the uh fictionalized dramatized uh artificial actions taken by the characters in these movies as potential pathogens that could be spread to the vulnerable public and that they have this so they they seem to have at least Neve Alger's character has the most i think a very sincere ultimately insane and misguided but a very sincere belief that what she is doing is correct mm -hmm. that you know she has experienced this the childhood trauma the loss of her sister the sort of presumed abduction kind of scenario and thinks what could possibly have caused something so sick to happen it has to come from somewhere it's a mystery maybe it comes from these other examples of darkness that come out of art and so the thought that somebody watching these movies could be driven to abduct a girl is so horrifying that she dedicates her life to eradicate. Yeah. Um, and that then, of course, the grand irony of the movie is that she ends up committing, in reality, yeah. actions that were fictionalized in the movies that she censored. Yeah. But within the movies performed by people who we're absolutely not doing anything. Yeah. When she when she acts as the 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 
sort of Twin Peaks giant-esque yeah. guy in the end. And he is no, 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 this isn't in the script. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then beheads you know. the director, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this idea yeah. that like... Well, it's interesting because what drives her to do it, I think the initial the initial thing that spirals her out is that she she lets a movie pass that in the tabloids or in media becomes a huge sensation that this specific movie was the model of some violence in society. So someone saw this movie or someone, it was proposed that someone saw this movie and committed violence in a similar style based on this movie. And she was one of the censors that let that movie pass out into the public. So she starts getting criticized by, you know, she starts getting mobbed by reporters and she starts getting phone calls of people who are like, you know, what the fuck, you piece of shit, you, you know, you let this filth into our society, you know. And I think that's the initial time that un- starts to unravel her sanity. Yeah. Because she probably cannot handle the fact that it, she takes it so seriously, or she, she took it so seriously that she had to protect society. And now she's being basically treated as the enemy and people are right. people are saying the exact opposite. They're saying to her, "You are the filth that lets this come out." And she like mentally can't handle it, so she starts to unravel in the movie. Yeah, and yeah, that's when you start to see like she's like the creepy sort of uh, scenes uh, that are like the one scene, which is this movie in particular too. As a side note, is has amazing cinematography. It really does. It's really fucking good. I yeah yeah. And there's the one scene where she goes into the subway. There's the um, like there's like a, a two hallways meet into this kind of cross subway thing, and she walks up towards the camera, and the camera's on the like facing her, and she hears a voice to the left of her, like this child's voice, and she like like wait what is that you know and she turns to go into this darkness and the camera was very steady but it must have been on like some steady cam kind of gear like a a handheld operator that was just sitting still with it and as soon as she turns the corner the operator like starts to move the camera starts to move and then follows her around the corner and it just goes into this darkness and i was like oh man that 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 scene is awesome like so it it doesn't explain so she hears a voice and then the camera follows her in the darkness and then it just cuts to the next scene so it's never explained whether or not she what that voice was it's not the yeah. it's not the classic horror movie where she goes and then she sees like a creepy little girl or something you know or she has some yeah. psychotic vision that's it just it's not it isn't explained so it's suggested like what what is she hearing you know she might be unraveling it was really tasteful i like that a lot um, Absolutely. Yeah. But that is like that those events start happening to her and then she starts losing herself and then it you know builds and builds and builds until the end when she acts as the movie crew. <laughs> she basically goes on a murder rampage with the movie crew. Well, and that was another one where like the uh I watched this movie. I saw it right when it came out because it was on Shutter back when I had the shutter subscription, which I have since renewed. I know we said in whatever the Noroe or something that mm. we both canceled our shutter <laughs> subscriptions after recommending it. And then I ended up resubscribing to it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because now that we're doing this show, I'm like, oh, it's actually 
relevant. Pretty useful, um, yeah. It's good to to check in on stuff on there. But so this was one that I saw like uh it was the new release on Shutter and I was like, okay, cool, I'll I'll check this out. So I knew, you know, nothing about it and then saying, Oh shit, it's about video nasty stuff. Okay, cool, yeah, that's I know about that. And but there's just talking about the cinematography angle, there's um in that, you know, the kind of climax of the the movie, um, she finds she she succeeds in in finding this mysterious director who made the movie that sparked this all off and manages to track him down to a film set out in the woods somewhere where she is mistaken as uh, an actress, you know. And they say, "Oh, so we got, why aren't you in makeup yet?" And so it offers her this perfect opportunity to you know infiltrate the film set and get the answers that she so desperately craves, but. What I, I remember the first time I watched it, it took me a while to actually notice what was happening. That the frame, oh yeah, starts shrinking. Yeah, that the movie has been widescreen, and it starts really slowly as this whole climactic sequence of her once she arrives at the film set, it starts shrinking down to like, uh, what is it to like square yeah. ratio. Which I think might be old these like digital not not digital but VHS cameras. Yeah, exactly. Using. Yeah, it shrinks down from like cinema scope or whatever from the the yeah I, I yeah. don't obviously not a technically film educated person but like it shrinks down from a proper movie aspect ratio to a cheap exploitation movie ratio. Yeah. but it does it really slowly. Yeah, and so it took a while where I started being like. Wait, is the frame getting smaller? Yeah, <laughs> like, and uh, and then oh fuck it is, and then you know it once it's fully shrunk down, she's arrived at the set of the movie where yeah. she you know does murder everybody and rescue the actress that she quote unquote rescue the actress she thinks is her missing sister yeah. and where she fully becomes the villain of the story yeah. basically, and that that's awesome because throughout the movie the psychosis that she's going through is not totally clear it's not explicitly given to us we just kind of it's totally hinted at like you can see like oh she's not doing well (laughs) you know (laughs) but there's never but as soon as it shrinks down to that aspect ratio the whole world looks evil and so we see the world as she sees it exactly so her first interaction with this director in that square a grainy VHS aspect ratio. He's like this madman. He he talks. He's like really commanding and like just like give me. He's he's like manipulating her and she's fighting against it. She's the heroine in that, you know. And he's like, no, shut up and give me the line. You know, he's like this really kind of evil dude. And then she goes in into the scene. And she sees this other evil dude, the giant, you know, the Twin Peaks giant guy, and he's holding her sister. And it's the climax where she's like, she sees it all clearly as this evil thing. And then she axes him. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it breaks the aspect ratio and it goes back into the wide frame and everyone's screaming. And like the the boom mic guy vomits (laughs) and stuff. (laughs) And then the director comes in and he's actually kind of a dork. Yeah. He's like he's like what's going on? Why did you do that? You know, and then she <laughs> yeah. she murders him, you know. Yeah, and then it goes back into the ratio and it's the dreamy sort of 
like yeah, very misty, misty and, like, horror, like moody. It's the and then when it breaks the frame and in, back into reality, it's the clear like digital almost kind of quality of the yeah. film. Yeah, totally. Even though I did find out that this was shot on film, which is oh, was it? Which is cool. It was, yeah. Oh, that's cool because they had like the effects seem. Oh, I guess that's cool. That like I, that makes sense. To give it the overall quality was pretty sort yeah. of warm and classic to the feeling, but I thought it was digital. I've sort of just assume everything remotely new that's not made by like one of the massive prestige guys like Tarantino right. or or um, Terrence Malick or or what's the Christopher Nolan. Like I just tend to assume everything aside from those people is shot on digital. Right. Though, but yeah. Well, that yeah the the DVD also had um. It has some cool like making of stuff, also about like the sound design and all the weird stuff they did. Dude, the sound design, I, sound design was awesome. Even the like the very opening VHS style, or, like opening to the movie with the credits. Like, um, what would you call those? You know, the clips that show you like uh, all the companies that funded it and stuff, or like what companies are involved. Yeah, I don't know if that's like pre-roll or if that's. Yeah, just the logos. I yeah, guess, pre but. pre credits, or yeah, um, I don't even like opening scene or whatever. Uh, those were all in this classic VHS style. Yeah, and I remember the sound design was like amazing because I was like, oh, dude, I kind of want to sample that. <laughs> yeah, what I saw like on the on the DVD was that they had um, the 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 people doing the sound design and music were not names that I recognized, but um, they would like record stuff and then dub it onto tapes oh like nice. onto vhs tapes and then put it on a tv and then mic the tv dude nice and so it's like oh yeah you guys are really doing it that's like, legit and that sounds really yeah. good and then they just did a really high quality probably digital recording exactly of that stuff that's awesome yeah yeah so you like intentionally degrade stuff yeah with the old media and then mix it back in in this more hi-fi way and yeah, I wonder how they did the small aspect ratio, the like low quality exploitation sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I don't know if they would have actually changed, like did they film that differently or did they, is it all some effect afterwards? Like In post? I have no, I know so little yeah. about how that stuff works that I wouldn't begin to guess yeah. really. Well, it's even interesting to know that they did 35, 35 millimeter? Yeah. Because that changes the way that you probably shoot and like yeah. production itself has to be guided a little bit more clearly because you have limited budget, of course, especially as in like an independent film. I don't think this was like, like you said, it's not a huge film. No, it's pretty much like government funded. Yeah. Um, I think the director, she's a, she has done, I mean, obviously, obviously not the first thing she's ever done, but first like solo uh, feature film. Yeah, she's, right. As far as I can tell, she seems like she's about our age. So, oh, cool. Yeah, relatively. If we can still call ourselves young, then <laughs> young, yeah. young director. And yeah, um, well, especially in terms of directors, directors seem to tend towards older years. I don't know. I think you either get the like the the star child thing, where it's like, whoa, this twenty year old mm. made this crazy thing, or yeah, it's like, oh, this middle-aged person has slowly been trucking along yeah. 
improving steadily. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you, if you're dealing with film stock, you have limited supply, so you probably have to, um, you have to do a lot of pre-production planning. I assume. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you would have to be more. Um, you would have to be more aware of all those things because you can't just. Um, yeah, you would yeah. have to. Yeah. I've, I found, I just pulled up, because there were some specific things that I looked up, was uh, I found an interview with Prano Bailey Bond. I hope I'm saying that somewhat correctly. I never know what <laughs> to do with, yeah. with Welsh names. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm saying the Bailey Bond part, but I don't know if it's Prano or Prano or, or something completely different. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm saying that yeah. uh, wrong. Dude, my friend, my but, friend in Ireland yeah. told me my Irish name like David, but it would be like Dahi, but it's oh. it's spelled D A I T H I. So I would oh, okay. I would normally pronounce it Doth Dithy or something, but it's Dithy, yeah, it's Dahi or something like that. So well, that's that's like the the star of this movie, Neve Alger. I would have just by looking at, it, I'd be like Niam, yeah, Alger, like I yeah, so yeah, right. Uh, Celtic languages. We could be I, butchering. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea where yeah. to begin. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah. But I found an interview with the director on the the British Film Institute site, and um, there was some cool. I also watched some interviews with her on the um, special features on the DVD, and um, yeah. So there was some cool. There was some cool stuff. It's a short interview that I'll put in the. Um, in the show notes, but, uh, yeah, there was a part that there was a part that I wanted to reference that I know I sent you like a screenshot of, but, um, yeah, where she says that uh, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with the evil dead to the point that when I studied performing arts for our final performance, we did this weird mashup play that was inspired by the evil dead and the company of wolves called Killer If You Can, Lover Boy, which is a line from the Under the Trapdoor zombie character in The Evil Dead. Mm. So that, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Suspiria, 1977, mm. they're all films that I grew up watching and loving. That period and the whole idea of the birth of VHS was my introduction to film because we lived in the middle of nowhere in Wales and I didn't have a cinema nearby. My access to film was this shelf of videos that belonged to my mom, dad, brother, and sister, so there's a lot of personal nostalgia in wanting to explore that era. Which is a, a nice, um, you know, that it's, it's, it's always nice to get. There's been such a, like, 80s nostalgia throwback thing over the last decade plus or whatever that uh, can often feel like, it can often feel kind of lazy. Oh, it's a horror thing in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and this one does not feel lazy at all. Mm. Um, in fact, I know on one of the special features they were talking about how, um, like intentionally wanting to show the duller side of the eighties mm. in like the way the characters dress. Yeah. Their, how, their outfits were particularly like sort of bland gray suits yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And the, like the censorship office is not like, it doesn't look like a Duran Duran yeah. video. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. a, <laughs> Though she, it's not a hip office. It does have, like the film has that. Uh, Suspiria style lighting like yes. neon lights are, are kicking off 
Um, yeah, it does have that. And and the like pervy producer's house is yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah. pretty uh, 80s. Yeah. Um, but then they ask the the interviewer asks, "Can you tell us about our about your research on film censors?" And Prano Bailey Bond responds, "I was researching right from the beginning of censorship when they used to read the scripts before they let them make the film. They'd actually censor the scripts during wartime or certain films. They'd say, we don't want to have this film made because it's going to make workers think they have rights and stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah." Censoring was very political early on, but it's much more juicy and dark in the 80s. What drew me to censorship was, as someone who's called a horror director, you're always being asked, why horror? And I find it a really difficult question to answer. Some of my family were into dark films and things, but not to the extent that I am. So you're like, why do I want to watch all this stuff? Where do you draw the line? Everybody has a different line, so my way into censorship was through all of that. Mm. The video nasty era was just so fascinating because this new form of technology is in place and people can now devour these films in their homes and we don't know what's going on behind closed doors mm. and what they're going to do to people. As humans, we think that we're one scene away from going out and killing someone. And I think that we've got more control of our, over ourselves than that. Yeah. I don't think it's films that make us do those things. <laughs> so it was a very deep dive into a lot of things that really excited me. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's cool so too. So I thought like, that was a pretty key point. Yeah, and it, like the way what she talks about with um, like, why am I interested in these things? I had that when I was younger. When I was, I think we've asked that question yeah. on this show before. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, why yeah. do we like this? Yeah, why? Why? Like, and yeah, it's just there's an excitement. There's like an unknown excitement that you can't like you can't tell because the wrongness of it, maybe you know. But the, it, the wrongness of it is exciting that it's it shows you something that you haven't experienced before, but it doesn't just corrupt. It it doesn't infect and corrupt my morals like straight off. You know, <laughs> it's just just pure sensation, like an excitement of it. Yeah. Well, I I do really appreciate like her, um, you know that we think we're one scene away from going out and killing someone. And I think we've got more control over ourselves than that. Because yeah. I remember that was a thought that I think that that's a thought that like, even, you know, I said this in the new metal episode on our Patreon, but about how, like, even when you don't buy the argument that art is corrupting you, our sort of society has drilled that question into our heads so effectively that even if you ultimately dismiss it, you are still asking yourself, is this corrupting me? And so that idea, I think a similar idea is that thought that like we're all, someone phrased it once as like we're all one missed paycheck away from the end of the world mm. or whatever. Oh, I, it's like um, we're two, it's something meals, we're three square meals away from apocalypse. You know? Yeah. The fact that we can all eat regular Meals keeps us keeps us at ease. If we took that away, people would just start killing each other. Like, and I think that that's like, well, I can't dismiss that notion entirely. I think that that's a massive oversimplification. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's one of those edgy statements yeah. that that people who want to affect, uh, like that want to affect a disaffected kind of world-weary, oh, I know the true nature of things, <laughs> say, without actually thinking about it. Mm, yeah. And so I think that there's a similar one that can come down to the idea that art, th there's something similar between that and the idea that 
that art can be a virus that even that gets into you and destroys you. And like, that's a very seductive idea, even for people who don't, don't seek to censor it. You know, you obviously get the censor idea that says art's a virus and we have to contain it, but you also get William Burroughs who says art's a virus. I'm going to spread it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm intentionally gonna, um, gonna interact with the viral nature of, of writing and, and art and something like that. And so I really like as a sort of, again, you know, the, this, this sober, balanced approach to middle age that we're apparently getting into is I really like Prano Bailey Bond's thing of, yeah, I think we've got a little more control than that. Yeah. Without fully dismissing the idea that, you know, these things, that there that there is something valid to the idea of, well, this is very dark subject matter, and why am I interested in this? Yeah. And that, that's a question worth asking without saying, oh, this must be an indication that I'm, boil i'm about to boil over and do something crazy yeah i also i also appreciate that that's like how they you know we have more control but the the film itself clearly shows the opposite of that so it's, which is kind of fun like this person did not have control and they tried to have control and that led them to lack of control you know well and that's that's often where i think like you know the the theme of the recurring theme of balance and everything is that that like, so you have. Do you remember what her character name is offhand? But but Neve Alger. Um, oh no, I don't. Don't. Yeah, I don't right now. But anyway, the main character of this movie that I really should know. <laughs> um, that it's like to to psychoanalyze her or whatever, which is maybe I shouldn't do. But like, it does feel like this is an example of complete repression of a of an attempt at total control where not only it seems like she has not been able to even remotely deal with what happened to her not that i can necessarily say what dealing with it would be but that it's like her parents in the movie you know this this all finding this mysterious tape for her coincides with her parents de- having her sister declared legally dead like it's been 20 years you know come on she's not coming back and she can't even accept like no she's still out there somewhere and so it's this total refusal to see reality to see that like no i think something really horrible like inexcusably horrible happened and there is nothing you can do about it you cannot bring her back. You cannot stop this. Also, you don't even get to know what happened. Mm. It is just an irresolvable mystery, mm. a dark mystery, not a fun mystery, a fucked up mystery yeah. that you will have to bear. And that it's like her entire life, she's said, try to make me. <laughs> yeah. And so she's like, I'm going to find out what happened to my sister. I'm going to find out who these people are. And also, I'm going to keep the UK safe. Yeah. I'm going to devote my life to, I'm not going to have, not that you'd have to, but like, I'm not going to have a family. I'm not going to have, doesn't seem like she really has friends. Doesn't seem like she has uh, hobbies sort of things. Yeah. But just this total hyper focus on, I must control the environment. Yeah. And that then, as we've said, like what ends up, what, what ends up happening is, she flips, so she goes from 100% white to 100% black, 100% control to 100% out of control. Yeah. And that I think the idea that, that 
I'm reading into the sort of what the director's saying about we have more control than that is the idea that like we do have more control over ourselves than we give credit for, but we also don't have total control. Mm. Yeah. And that if I were to try to therapize Neve Alger's character, I would say like, well, do, do you think that, do you think that maybe the reason these people are making these movies is might be that they don't end up doing it? Yeah. That if you do it in fiction, you don't have to do it in reality. Yeah. You know, that if you want to, you, I mean, this is, this is an oversimplification, but that like, We've brought it. We've, we're fond of bringing up Cannibal Corpse lyrics or or things like that, and saying like that writing down a scenario where you do the most vile, fucked up thing can take the place of even the seed of ever actually having to do it. Yeah, that you get to live that out in a full, in a perfectly safe, fun way. Yeah. You feel just enough of the darkness, just enough yeah. of, ooh, what if I did it? That then you say, it's it's sort of functions like a vaccine, I guess I would say. Yeah, so you, that's a good that's a good way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A little bit of the virus so that then you your system learns how to deal with it. You can say, oh, it's a horror movie. I'm feeling upset and angry and I want to watch some fucked up stuff happen. So I'm going to play this video game. I'm going to watch this movie. Yeah. And then I'm going to go play with my cat. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I'm not yeah. going to do anything like that in reality. Yeah. But that instead when you, it's a, it's a, when you don't have that, I mean, you know, people should get vaccinated. So I'm going to go with this, <laughs> with this, <laughs> with this analogy that like, you know, when you don't have that, that system that can deal with something like this, then it fucking kills you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you don't have the ability to tolerate the virus, then the virus kills you. Yeah, it's not softened. Yeah. It's it comes harder. You've actually made yourself more vulnerable yeah. by trying to control it. Right. By saying, no, you know, this I refuse to accept the reality of this virus called horror. Yeah. That then when it comes for you and it will come for you, yeah. you're totally fucked. You're totally open to it yeah where you know so that would be neve alger's character is she's totally open to the the pathogen yeah. where the people making the movies yeah say are we're, you know we're immunized yeah they're immunized through, because they took a little bit of the bacteria or whatever yeah that's a good analogy i like that a lot uh i was talking to someone about um i think it was cole i was talking to about uh the like the the con like the modern uh, take on the phrase get behind me Satan mm. you know and how uh, a more appropriate phrase would be like get before me Satan so that I can actually pay attention to you you know <laughs> you know like this this kind of sense of like I'm gonna put evil behind me I'm not gonna even I'm not gonna talk to evil I'm not gonna f interact with it in any sense and that you've somehow then just taken your eyes off it and given it the freedom to wreak havoc because <laughs> you don't know what the hell's going on behind you, you know? So it's just repressed. And But what you really should do is pay small amounts of attention to it, you know, and be so that you can understand it and control it and stuff. But also recognizing that, like, that con attempt at control can tip over. Yeah. 
and that it's it's almost like then this if we're talking about say like a spirit that you're keeping yeah. in view that then it's like the spirit is now hypnotizing you yeah. to to let it out yeah hey hey look over here look at me no no yeah. no keep looking at me keep looking at me and then it, you don't notice that it's picking yeah. your pocket yeah it's right taking the keys <laughs> yeah, right. or whatever yeah. like and this is one of these like eternal questions of society that we can't fully answer like because people are afraid that if you look at this, if you look at the evil, if you look at the spirit or something, you're going to become mesmerized by it, you know, and then you're going to fall under its spell, and you're going to be taken to the dark side or whatever. Whereas other people are like, no, you have to pay attention at least a little bit to know how to interact with it to be healthy and stuff. And it is there's just there's just danger involved. There always is. You can't know that if someone does actually look at dark stuff that they won't be mesmerized by it. You know, yeah. who's who's to say that they won't? <laughs> we don't know for sure, you know. Yeah. That's the un, that's just an, an eternal question that can like almost never be answered. <laughs> Maybe. Well, know? and it does it does feel like the a lot of the 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 difficulty or what I would probably call error in in a lot of these things is the thought that there's um is the thought that there's like one one answer for all people, for all times, for all contexts, for all yeah. cultures, whatever it is that says, I mean, even the, you know, Prano Bailey Bond says it in, in the interview excerpt that I just read that, uh, where is it, you know, so you're like, why do I want to watch all this stuff? Where do you draw the line? Everybody has a different line. Yeah. So my way into censorship was through all of that, that, you know, I can, uh, we, as we've talked about, like I, have no problem watching Lucio Fulci movies, watching Dario Argento movies, watching things like that. But the the early 2000s sort of torture porn era is genuinely upsetting. Yeah, right. Even though it's fucking cheap. Even though I know like the Saw movies are, are like cheap nonsense. Mm. There is still some core to it that I'm like, no, this is fucked, man. Like I can't hang with this. Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. that yeah no well we uh we got caught those when they were mainstream movies in big theaters uh and they were hitting in a particular way you know whereas I can watch exploitation kind of horror films and I don't get fr- I don't get upset by those in the same way that I do the mainstream torture porn I mean I do think this is a like a side thing but I was I was listening to something um we we never shout out other other podcasts on this, I think, because why? But uh, I, I listen to like three podcasts. <laughs> I don't know anybody who makes them or anything. But one I listen to is called Podcast the Ride, which is about theme parks. I hate theme parks. Oh, dude, I love theme parks. <laughs> you should listen to this. Yeah. Um, I do not. I've never oh. liked theme parks. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in them. But I just love hearing these guys t- because they talk about like, They'll do like an entire episode about the line oh, for a ride. Yeah, I didn't, so it's I like, like the line. <laughs> it's like massive detail, and it's <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's kind of awesome. But yeah, they were talking. So I was listening to something recently where they were talking about the um, the Fear Factor like live show that used to be at Universal Studios, mm. and which was like a okay, like it's like the 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 once popular TV show Fear Factor and, and okay, have you ever wanted to get forced to eat bugs? Well, now you can do it at Universal <laughs> Studios. And but they so they were sort of talking about like 
why was this kind of thing appealing yeah. to us? Like, why in the early 2000s was, were there so many shows like this? And they, they were just sort of generally talking about the, the kind of meanness of culture mm. then, where they were like, you know, you had these, all these shows, like even American Idol was much more like, you fucking idiot. Yeah, right. That's not what Whitney Houston sound. You're a disgrace yeah. to, to Justin Timberlake or whatever you were singing. It was much more like, let's make fun of this idiot who just tried yeah, to sing a song. Yeah. Or game shows like The Weakest Link or things like Survivor, it was much more like, there was a certain like cutthroat, cutthroat nature and like a mean spiritedness yeah. to it that went beyond just the competition. Like, Hey, there's going to be a winner and a loser, but into let's mock the loser. Yeah. And I feel like somehow the torture porn era, I mean, it was the same era and that, that, that kind of meanness is, has always been something that I felt from specifically Eli Roth. Yeah. The guy who made hostile and, uh, Green Inferno and things like that is this like <laughs> he's that asshole yeah at the in your class in high school where it's like everybody thinks he's funny but you're like that guy actually sucks mm. that guy is actually mean yeah people actually get hurt by the things that that guy says yeah but he has this char oh he's fucking it's just that guy or whatever so it, there's just that vibe to that stuff that yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's not there with Fulci. That's not yeah. there with with Dario Argento. Yeah, they're more like art club kids. Like, let's build weird faces and then smash them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know George Romero. I mean, even the people making like Tom Savini and people yeah. making the zombies and the fucked up stuff. You feel like, well, no, those are like art nerds. Yeah, yeah, like you said, those are art nerds. These are these are people. Yeah, this this is clearly art. This is an art thing, yeah. and it has the sort of cheapness because of financial realities. Yeah. Um, uh, instead of being like a social jester, not a jester, like, or like trickster, social trickster or something. How would you? Yeah. How would you, but in a in a more sort of, I'm going to stick it to you kind of way. Yeah, there. It just feels like there's something genuinely mean spirited. Yeah. In that that era at large, and I think in the the podcast, the Ride Guys made the the larger point. They're like, yeah, don't you think it's interesting that Fear Factor was hosted by Joe Rogan, who was a mean spirited uh, reality TV show host, and then a mean spirited reality TV show judge became the president. <laughs> <laughs> that like the ghosts of this era of like. Uh, sort of released, what do they call it? They were like, drink your hog water pigs or something. <laughs> like, era of, like, torture porn and The Weakest Link <laughs> and Survivor and Fear Factor and The Apprentice and stuff. Yeah. Then flash forward 15 years and you're like, right, so The Fear Factor guy is the most famous media person yeah. in the world and The Apprentice guy was the president. <laughs> <laughs> and so right. you're like, but that was a real moment. Yeah, that no, was yeah. a real... I, wow, I've, I've never realized that. I never. I didn't realize yeah. that until like earlier. I was like, yeah. "Oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> that's that is weird." Let's hope we got it out of our system then. <laughs> well, that's the feeling that I have with with this sort of thing is that like there are this impulse to control things. I think is very understandable. Um, I think it's it's 
both on like a personal level, like we want to have control over ourselves by and large. Mm -hmm. We want to feel that we're, um, I mean, ranging from things like I get to choose what I do with my life, that level of control over yourself, but also the feeling that like I can manage my emotions. I won't just start crying in the supermarket. (laughs) I won't just, you know, lose my temper when somebody annoys me. I, these sorts of things. And so there, there is a, an extremely reasonable, understandable desire for self-control. And then I think it's a natural step to extrapolate that out into, well, we should all control ourselves. And then you go one step further and you say, well, if people can't do that, then maybe there should be some other thing that controls them for us. (laughs) And then that thing that Prano Bailey Bond was talking about, about everybody's line is different, starts to to be worth remembering, which is that I might not want to watch a Saw movie. I might think that there's something genuinely mean-spirited about Eli Roth. But does that mean you feel that way? I don't know. Does that mean that because I think that stuff is true, that it is true? I I can say authoritatively that it's true for me that it's true that torture porn movies upset me and are over the line for me. But, you know, can I say that for you? I don't, I don't think I can. Mm. But the impulse to try to say that, I think, is very understandable. Mm. Yeah, sorry. It was like um, the theme of thinking of oneself and like reflecting on your own consciousness put me in such a reflective state <laughs> that I had to just like kind of take a step back and just think about it. Oh yeah. It, yeah. I, I kind of fell into, I, I fell into the, how do I, how do I, you know, what me, what is me? <laughs> Which is a little too cosmic maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, if you're, in the cosmic zone <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> there was something that I was, um, so you, you referenced in terms of the movie, in terms of censor that the, the sort of tipping point for, uh, Neve Alger's character, which Enid, that's right. I knew oh, it was a yeah. very like Puritan sounding name. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry if you're named Enid. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, when, when, you know, this, there's a real within the movie there's a there's a a murder out in the world where a guy kills if i remember right like a guy kills his family and like eats his wife's face mm. and that then the in the reporting about this horrible sadistic monstrous crime they say oh he was inspired by whatever movie that was the last movie he saw before committing these terrible acts and that's a movie that Enid uh, passed as a censor. She allowed that movie to be released, ultimately. And so then the blame that she experiences for this kind of association with a, a real crime is kind of the thing that sets her off. Uh, yeah. And so the thing, when I when I was re-watching that uh, the other day in advance of this, I was like, wait a minute, I think that really happened, actually. I think that that, I was like, that crime sounds 
like something I know about that happened, I want to say around that. So I was kind of like, fuck, what was that? What was that? So I went looking for like, you know, what were some, were there any real crimes that were tied up? Uh, I mean, of course, the, the one that they say in the movie Censor is is fictional. They they made that up. Um, but I was like, what what is this based on? And I couldn't find definitively something that it was based on, but I found the thing that I thought of. Oh, okay, yeah. The thing I thought it was based on, which took place, which which was a real murder that happened in 1974, so a, a decade earlier than, because Censor takes place in 85, so, yeah. you know, 11 years earlier. But have you ever heard of Michael Taylor or the Osset murder? Not offhand. This was, um, have you ever listened to that that podcast, Unexplained? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. I've probably I, yeah you showed me I I listened because of because of your recommendation. Okay, yeah. Um yeah, cuz that guy has he sounds like John Balance from Coil and has a great <laughs> it's very great, soothing. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very soothing <laughs> guy to tell you about awful stuff. Um <laughs> And uh so I remember like right, there was a there was an episode of Unexplained from 4 or 5 years ago about this guy Michael Taylor who was uh, well, just reading from his Wikipedia article, Michael Taylor became notable in England in 1974 as a result of the Osset murder case and his alleged demonic possession. Mm. And so the deal was that this guy got, um, I'm not going to just read the Wikipedia article. People can, I'll put that in the show notes and you can look this up. But, but the basically, Michael, you know, it's the classic sort of story of like, Michael Taylor is a, you know, normal middle working class guy in Yorkshire and he's got a beautiful wife and everything is fine. Um, and then this new woman, Marie Robinson shows up at their church, at their Christian fellowship group, which from looking at a Christian fellowship seems sort of somewhere like on the Quaker Unitarian end of things. Mm. So what I guess I would class as like chill Christians. Yeah. Um, but that there was this new woman showed up and had sort of like a charismatic presence. and But that then Michael starts like exhibiting sort of signs of possession. And he's talking about having impulses that he doesn't feel are him and, you know, this this kind of thing. And that then this group decides to, this church group decides to exercise him. And they, you know, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about this, but obviously, like, exorcisms, properly speaking, properly speaking, have to be, like, authorized by the Vatican, and it's a whole so that was, giant thing. Yeah, but they wouldn't be of, like, a Roman Catholic lineage. Yeah, these weren't Catholics. So I wonder how they decided to approach it. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, I should realize I didn't read, didn't have time to re-listen to that um, unexplained episode, but I will find it and put it in the show notes. I'll listen to it again and just see if there's anything. But um, I remember they decided to have an exorcism for the guy, and they did get an Anglican priest. Mm. So not, which is not Catholic, but Anglican. The Anglicans are much closer to uh, the Catholic situation than other Protestants. I'm probably just alienated all Catholics and Protestants <laughs> by saying that, which is completely fine. 
I don't care. <laughs> um, sorry, but oh well. Um, so they did bring in this other guy to perform the exorcism. And so they had, they like did a lockdown, you know, overnight exorcism situation, which I remember was described in some detail in the podcast episode. But uh, the quote I have here, the exorcist stated that they they had in an all-night ceremony invoked and cast out, which is, okay, I don't know if you know what invoked means. Yeah. But they had in an all-night ceremony invoked and cast out at least 40 demons, including those of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. At the end, exhausted, they allowed Taylor to go home, although they felt that at least three demons, insanity, murder, and violence, were still left in him. Mm. So they let him... They let him go. They basically say, okay, we got most of the demons. You can go. And he went immediately home and killed his wife. And uh, I guess you're very deep in a podcast about horror movies, so you probably don't need a trigger warning, but trigger warning, uh, tore her apart with his hands. Oh, jeez, yeah. Um, like that that one page in From Hell style. Mm. Um. And then he was found in the street, naked, covered in blood, and uh, arrested and all of that. And so this did come up in the Red Riding series, which is a British crime novel series by David Peace. Uh, that's not why I thought it was related to this, but... I thought of that when in Censor they talk about, you know, oh, so-and-so like ate his wife's face after watching cannibal holocaust or whatever that i was like fuck wait was that michael taylor and yeah but it is like it does make me think self-fulfilling prophecy (laughs) like did they put him through this rigorous trial and which was sort of focused upon his wrongness and his like being possessed by demons did they convince him of all these things? Especially if they say afterwards, we got most of them, except you still got murder in you. <laughs> you know, know, like, and, and then like, what kind of mental trial did this person go through? And then suggestive state that they're in, you know, like, I I, I don't, I, I tend to think like, did, like, how is that? How is that ethically handled? Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think it's funny just looking at this, like, cast out at least 40 demons, including those of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. I would say if time is a concern, <laughs> that you can probably let blasphemy and lewdness yeah. wait until next time, but keep murder and violence <laughs> at the top of the list. Yeah. We need to make sure that we don't, let him leave while he's still got murder in him, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they said, all right, look, it's we're all tired. We need to go home and rest. You've got blasphemy and lewdness in you, so you might, you know, uh, take the Lord's name in vain yeah. and, he might just and, like, like uh, start... get your dick out. <laughs> he might just start an awesome career in comedy, you know? <laughs> yeah, you might be, like, start a goth band, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's right. But even if, you know, it's like, yeah, we can let those ones go until next week. Yeah. And just, you know, stay away from schools and you'll be fine. Yeah, unless, unless and, those were easy yeah. ones. Those are like, 
Yeah, you start with the easy one. Yeah, the spirit of lewdness was like, yeah, I kind of want to leave. I'm not, this is no fun for me anymore. So I'm just going to, I'm going to skip out here. Yeah, where insanity and murder and violence (laughs) are much, much harder to. Yeah. But I do think that that, that, that mistake, and I don't know whose mistake it was, but the, the mistake where they say that they invoked and cast out at least 40 demons, invoke means to bring within. Yeah. No, it would be like an evocation. Yeah, so it's either, I mean, there's clearly an error there, and the simpler error is that they mean evoked. Yeah. And they said invoked. Yeah. The more interesting error is that they don't know what invoked means. <laughs> and that they did, in fact, invoke 40 Ds. Yes. Because <laughs> that lends a little bit more support to what you were saying about the this, even just the sort of, we put like the literal existence of demon question off to the side for a second and just do the self-fulfilling prophecy thing like you were saying, which is that that would be an invocation that doing, doing this, this supposed exorcism where everybody focuses their energy on you as the receptacle or the vessel of blasphemy, incest, lewdness, murder, violence, that that was an invocation of those things into you. Which is a terrible thing. Like if you're doing like ceremonial and magic and stuff, consent is, is, to me, it's like hugely important, you know, like you shouldn't, uh, I, I mean, but that where, where, do, like, this is the hard thing with these kind of like hard religion takes where people get it into your head that you are doing something wrong, that you are a bad person that manipulates consent. Cause how can you consent when someone's saying like, you don't have the ability to consent cause you're a bad person, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard line, but Mostly, like this is why I I mostly support like individual practice with this stuff, so that you can play with it on your own, and you know mm-hmm. exactly like I'm gonna dip my toe in here. Oh, that felt a certain way. Okay, I'm gonna approach that as safely as possible. Like, but to have someone else be like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna invoke forty demons. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like well okay I'll go along with that I because you are telling me it's the right thing to do you know yeah uh, is hugely um, irresponsible irresponsible that's the word yeah that's the yeah. word I was thinking about hugely irresponsible um, yeah that's yeah but I like that's a, that's a lot of these things you know um, it it, it kind of goes to the like if you don't if you don't know how to handle an evil or like a concept of imbalance in the world. If you don't know how to handle that, then you shouldn't be gung ho trying to fix it. Right. It's like me learning that I'm like, Oh, water damage is terrible for a house. So I'm just going to go start working on your pipes. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I should probably take some classes in plumbing first. Right. Or I should talk to a plumber or something, you know. At the very least. At the very least, you know. I'm not going to just be like, I'm going to prevent your house from having water damage because I'm really afraid. You got a leaky sink, so I'm going to tear the wall down. (laughs) And start like, it's like some of the censorship stuff are people acting from full states of fear. Absolutely. They're going to dismantle our culture. They're going to kill all our children. So we need to fix all this shit. We need to tear all the walls down and rip out the pipes and figure it all out, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, am I going to have running water? <laughs> like, yeah. Are you are you making this worse for everybody, you know, by doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, and that's that gets scary. And that's 
you don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> well, there's there's a couple of ideas that that come to mind whenever I when I think about that. Um, yeah, and specifically thinking about the censorship theme that's to do with the movie that came up in the video nasties thing and from last week and all that. That yeah, there's there is this. I, I agree that it's almost entirely driven by fear. Um, and yeah, that those those fears of you know if we let certain ideas out it's going to destroy our culture it's going to destroy our way of life it's going to it's going to do that and and there is a question that that comes to mind where i think something along the lines of like is your thing really that weak hmm. like is your is your culture that weak that that you know cannibal corpse can destroy it yeah <laughs> <laughs> like is it like that that a bunch of saw movies and that, that that can destroy your culture. Yeah, you better strengthen your fucking culture, yeah, man. Like, like yeah, that's you got bigger fish to fry. It's almost like a you know like a stress test. Mm, yeah, you can sort of think about it in 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 that angle yeah. that it's like if your sense of morals can be completely undermined by a oh. horror movie, then I think you need to strengthen your sense of morals. Yeah. Like those are incredibly weak. If it's that easy to get past them, yeah. Um, so I can think of it sort of in, in terms of, in terms of that. And then I have less of a problem with thinking about it in, in those zones, but another idea that I'm, I'm less fully comfortable with, but is still one that, that comes up when I think about this stuff, which is that, well, if, if this is actually the thing that's going to destroy the old, you know, you've, you've, oh, our traditional values are being undermined or whatever. And it's like, if all it takes is a bunch of bands and weird movies to do that, then your thing probably needed to get destroyed. Yeah, right. That this might actually be the the order of things. It's like uh, it it goes into a deeper a deeper equilibration or something. It needs to be purified by na- by the natural um, natural state of things. Yeah, it has it, it had no strong uh, uh, foundational. It had no strong foundation, you know. Yeah, and, it, and that that I, yeah, yeah, and it's better to, uh, maybe I'm I'm like just riffing here philosophically, but it's better to go for it. Better to let it, um, be challenged in that way, than building like a scaffolding over it, like on a weaker foundation. You know, you don't want to build upon a weaker foundation. Yeah, you want to wash it out. Yeah, with cannibal corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this is a like these are both, you know, n- neither of the ideas I've just said are uh, the neither one is a hill on which I'd like to die. Yeah, right. I'll put right, it that right, way. Right. So I acknowledge that I'm not fully on board with with either of these ideas, um, but I do think there's something to them. And and yeah, that idea that like when does holding on to Something. When does holding on to some traditional value, holding on to some tenet of culture, um, become hopelessly clinging to that piece of you know that door at, after the sinking of the Titanic? You know where Leo dies in that heartbreaking scene that we all remember. <laughs> you know, but like, when does it? When is it really best to let the thing go? Mm. You know, to say like, yeah, I think we're past that. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, that there is something valid to saying if all it took was, you know, if all it took was 
50 years of pop culture to destroy the world's values, then those weren't really the best values to begin with, now were they? Yeah. Right. I think that there's, that that, I can go with that idea up to a point. I'll say that. Yeah, well, I can go with it to a degree because I don't think that our values are being destroyed. That's, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think that certain things are being destroyed, that there is a kind of, like fire yeah. that can that can come from letting out all the monsters letting out okay fine yeah. you know we're going to all the the stuff that the old ways determined were monsters yeah. the sex the drugs the violence the you know whatever that by saying fine fuck it let it out yeah. that that can get rid of wash away burn away whatever element you think it is that's doing it yeah. you know that can can kind of because the the image that i that i think of this would probably be the way that i more accurately think about it is i remember very when i was a kid um fairly foundational memory for me was going to uh the natural history museum in la which had an exhibit about the then relatively recent eruption of Mount St. Helens, mm. the volcano in Washington, which is actually now weirdly close to me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right, oh it's no. right off screen there. <laughs> yeah, it's slowly coming here. Like, um, it's like it followed. It's just yeah. slowly <laughs> moving up the coast. Um, but where, I, and one of the things I remember from it was that it was it was talking about how in addition to all of the, uh, you know, more cataclysmic aspects of the eruption of that volcano, that one of the things that did happen was, you know, it led to a lot of growth of the vegetation yeah. in on the mountain and on, in surrounding areas because, you know, that's a thing that forest fires do yeah. in general, which is, you know, burn away the you burn away undergrowth yeah. you let you release seeds there are certain plants that release their seeds when it gets to a certain temperature so you need the the heat right. to release the seeds but then also it fertilizes the ground yeah this is something that i didn't fully understand about controlled fires like i know i know i'm like why are we setting the forest on fire <laughs> why are, why is the forest uh, foresters setting it on fire you know until i realized that it is like controlled fires like that is beneficial are are beneficial to the the ecosystem yeah and so sort of talking because the th- this theme of control and and release has been going through this episode and last week's episode too i would say that maybe at least for a provisional answer for why i like horror and and why i sort of defend this stuff is that i would basically see it as a controlled burn mm. Because there is something potentially, there's something a little bit like paradoxical about a controlled burn because we think of a burn as being out of control. Yeah. That a fire is one of the least controlled things we can think right. of. And the idea of people, what, you're going to try to control that? And I would say, well, I think that's what extreme music is. I think that's yeah. what horror movies yeah, are. Nice. I think that's what... Um, uh, consensual weird sex is. Yeah. I think that's what, yeah. whatever it is, is that it's like a controlled burn. Yeah. That you, yes, I'm going to go into the this out of control domain, but with as many safety measures in place, but number one, yeah. but also with the end 
because the goal of a controlled burn is not just we're going to blow off some steam, but it's actually this is going to help. Yeah. This is going to make the ground more fertile. This is going to avoid worse fires. This is like that. And I would actually argue more wholeheartedly that that's what um, what gets called often like extreme art does. Yeah. Yeah, it's like like you said uh, in a similar analogy, like the um, the uh, vaccination analogy is yeah. also the controlled burn. I, like, these are great. I, this is totally how I I I see these things. Yeah. So I think that that would be the point of departure that I have with the idea that like like as you said, like I don't I don't buy this because I don't think that weird art and all that is destroying yeah. culture is that I'm like, no, I don't think it is. And the stuff that it is destroying, I think it's destroying in the way that a forest fire destroys the old stuff, not in the sense of fuck you old stuff, but of saying it's time to recycle this. Yeah. It's, you know, your time has ended. The new thing must happen. And as also keeping as like a, a thing of honor, like we can, we can, keep honor with these things that are ending. Like you did serve a purpose. You like you gave your time and you shaped culture and you gave to it. And now it is a time of passing, which inevitably has to be because, cause nothing is eternal. Nothing lives forever, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's just a, okay, time of passing, but like, I don't want to, um, it would, it would be, futile i should say for me to be like well all all you know these censors and like um conservative culture and stuff they were all just the, the worst they destroyed us and it's like no it, you know it all came from something it's all a part of the world i have to have respect for the world itself and nature itself and they their views grew as naturally as anything else and now it's their time of passing <laughs> you know no i think that's yeah. good yeah. And I think I think that that's important and I also think that that's one of the most I mean in the funny thing is like that that's one of the most like ancient ideas that you could mm. bringing up something like as as an idea that's been with us as long as that one to explain what are seen what is seen often by people as the radical newness. Yeah. I like that that it's like the the newness is explained by the oldness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think like uh I don't know. I I never know if I'm using this word properly and so it is probably something that I throw around without having a degree in science, you know. <laughs> but like entropy. Mhm. Uh, the way that I understand it and uh, someone more knowledgeable can correct me. Um but it is like the establishment of a system in nature that grows towards stability and the closer that it grows towards stability, the more sort it has the probability of dispersing into chaos, right? Like, so when things become more stable and systematic, nature is more and more probable that it's going to insert the bug that then scatters that all, and breaks the system completely and then starts anew, kind of starts the process anew, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's more natural to expect that your systems are going to eventually be, uh, you know, broken apart 
and made way for new systems, right? And so it doesn't have to be terrifying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I do think that the, like, you know, what you're saying about a, a sort of, like, like honor or dignity or whatever it is in that process is that might be the thing. If I can isolate one factor that I would say that's responsible for this, which is of course a ridiculous thing to try Mm -hmm. to do because it's not one factor, but that I do think with a lot of this stuff, um, there there can be the sense that you want, you know, impermanence is hard. Mm. To the under understatement of a of a lifetime yeah. is that impermanence is very difficult to deal with, and that the dealing with the world and wanting to make an impact on it, wanting whether it's I don't know us making our art and wanting to impact it that way, or it's Enid in the movie wanting to you know keep people safe or, or something like that. That there is this desire to make an impact on the world and. Even those of us who are successful at making the impact we we set out to make know, must know somewhere deep down that that will be undone eventually, either in the sense that we will be forgotten, uh, the things we've done will crumble. You know, it's the Ozymandias, mm. uh, you know, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair, as the sand, you know, statue sinks into the sand, that somewhere we know that that's... Um, that that's a thing. And it seems like most of, it seems like what's happened as a result of trying to reckon with that impermanence is specifically in the 20th and now into the 21st century is this, this battle between nihilism and a kind of denial of impermanence mm. that you have one element that says, nuh-uh, I'm not impermanent. Yeah. I can remain, no, 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 maybe if we just work really hard, we can make the thing that's permanent and eternal. Yeah. And then the only present response to that in most cases is a nihilistic, like, fuck you. Yeah. You don't even, this, none of this fucking matters. Which feels to me like they're equally ineffective at dealing with impermanence. Because one yeah. denies the fading away the the what I'm identifying as the sort of traditionalist, like, no, we can make something that lasts forever, denies the fading away aspect of impermanence. Yeah. But the dismissive nihilistic element denies the coming into being of impermanence. Yeah. That the, the deal with impermanence is things do exist and then they stop existing. Mm. And we're back to double vision. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we're back to each one collapses into single vision, which mm-hmm. ends up being the problem. And it's oh, that's very interesting. Um, let me re let me let me sort of digest that again. What you what yeah. you just said because it, it was hitting. Go me. For I it. liked it. So um, the thing that freaks out nihilists is coming into importance and then having to relinquish it or lose it. Exactly. And so they would rather say, "I never had it at all." I want to, I, nothing has meaning, which is really interesting because when they say nothing has meaning, they basically try to actively destroy meaning. So they're trying, they're like playing with the thing that they fear. They don't want somewhere. Yeah, they don't want to be destroyed, so they right. they want to be the destroyer. 
Yeah, which is it, it's it's paradoxical, but it's I, this I love this kind of shit. <laughs> there yeah. is also like a very silly futility yeah. in it where it's like the fact that you have to do this destruction means that there was something to destroy. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't have had to do this if there was nothing. Yeah, dude, right. So this is this is something though this is my personal this is uh, an idea that I've been like has been churning in my head for a little bit about the book of Genesis about our actual the the fall from Eden like what it actually is um and in that we eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil there's a lot of ofs in that <laughs> but we become aware of knowledge of good and evil and that separates us from the unity and so it's the it's the actual dichotomy that throws us into this hard imbalance this philosophical imbalance that separates us from equilibrium and that's exactly what like this conversation reminds me of like i can't deal with uh being destroyed so i have to be the destroyer so like i hop from one end to the other because i can't i can't deal with it and that inevitably then throws me back to the other end in a, like this kind of quantum pendulum swing you know mm -hmm. like i'm in both places at once and it's a frenzy because i can't even deal with the equilibrium in the middle or something you know this is this yeah. is a lofty concept that <laughs> I, I can't say yeah. that i even fully understand myself you know um but yeah no it's 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 really interesting that like it's yeah it, it, this is this is obviously then gets into territory where you have to go through a whole a whole regiment of, <laughs> you know, you have to do some kind of work to get into a huge regiment of coming to understand this, which is un, is not fully understandable, this equilibrium that I'm talking about, you know. Um, so most people get caught in the snare of that dichotomy. They get caught in the like, well, that's good, that's bad. I have to be on one side of that or the other, you know, like a seesaw, the analogy, yeah. you know. And I feel like um, like monks or adept, adepts, their goal is not to be on the good side. Because when you say good, it's an imbalance of the seesaw. It has to be the equilibrium, the complete equilibrium in the middle, right? I want to say that this is a Buddhist thing, but as I've said many times, I'm not a Buddhist. It might well be from somewhere else, but that it's, you know, you've got the wheel, the wheel of samsara yeah. and all of that, and that it's about getting off the wheel and onto the, the axle. Mm that the axle is the still point yeah. around which the wheel moves, yeah. that it's not like, I got off the wheel and now I'm on this totally other device. Yeah. That it's like, well, that I got off the wheel and now I'm on the the, the seesaw. Yeah. Now I'm on the swing. Now it's like, well, that's going to be the same thing as the wheel. Yeah. But the idea of getting to the thing on which the wheel moves, yeah. which is a fixed point, is, you know, a different yeah. Thing. Which I've this yeah. also might be in someone's description of the Wheel of Fortune card in the tarot. Mm. That might be where this is from. But which isn't yeah. yeah, that's interesting. The wheel the fortune card in the Thoth deck is like the this constant churning of nature, the three gunas. Yeah. Which, which is just the 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 engine of nature that is constantly moving. But there's movement. There's not stillness in that. You know, yeah, and that makes me think that, uh, and I'm not sure I would have to talk to a Buddhist myself, you know, but when you actually achieve the center of the wheel, 
it's not a per, a state of permanence. Perhaps it actually, it's just, it's almost like a timeless. You just, it's, it seems timeless, but it takes work. There is action always involved, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like I, I assume that a Buddhist monk that gets, reaches the heights, if they do not keep up their practice, they will lose it. <laughs> uh, I don't think that there's like these thresholds that you could, I think there are like probably like riding a bike, you will hold on to it and you could come back to it probably. You don't have to start at zero. Right. I would be surprised. Right. Yeah. But I don't, I don't assume that you just cross into, you know, God, godliness, you know, which seems to be a, a big misconception in Western culture that probably comes from Christianity where we're like, oh no, Jesus was a God in man. So other men can become, you know, or women or whatever, other humans can become gods like Jesus. They, they'd probably say just men. Probably, yeah, they probably would, right? Yeah, because it's, it mostly is. And hence why yeah. like you see like cult leaders often yeah, following exactly. a sort of Christian sort of model for this stuff. Yeah, um, and even when Westerners encounter non-Western traditions, there is a kind of shaping them to Christian frameworks yeah, right. that seems to happen. People, yeah, like the hippies went and got Buddhism and Hinduism and brought it to California and everything, but it's not actually, I'm not sure all of them really got it. Yeah, right, like, yeah. A lot of them seem to have put their sort of American Protestant baggage in there with Ganesha and the bodhisattvas and all that stuff right. that yeah i think the thing one of the things for me at least that like the way i the way i've come to think about this sort of dialogue between the the traditionalist like no it matters and the nihilist none of it matters is that it's like it does matter but that won't save it yeah is that it's like we do matter and that won't spare us. Yeah. You know what I mean? That like all our tiny little, like, yes, we are fragile and impermanent and can be obliterated by the sands of time. And you know, all those things like, yes, that's all true. And yet we still matter. We don't matter more than whatever, but we can't obliterate the entire thing and that I feel like sometimes the the impulse because I'm more particularly interested in the impulse to nihilism because that's the one I've felt by not being a religious conservative person yeah you know the my particular thing to overcome has been the nihilistic angle so it's where I really tend to feel like that that perspective really has a lot to do with not being able to bear the fact that this is real and yet it will end. Yeah, right. And I think that that issue also comes up, you know, with the the more typical thing you get is like, because it's always fun to pick on Christians or whatever, is you get that whole, and I mean, lots of new age shit falls into this angle and that kind of Western, under, that Western understanding of of Nirvana and stuff like that that's, it's like, okay, yeah, this place is horrible, but but that's why there's heaven. Yeah, that's why there's nirvana. That's why there's 
the the life after this one. And that then you get the nihilistic thing that's like, yeah, this place is horrible, full stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing, this place is horrible, so fuck it. Yeah. And that instead it's like, well, what if this place just is horrible and great and boring? Yeah. And like, what if it's all of the things yeah. that we think it is and it being unbelievably cruel is no less real than it being warm and cuddly. Yeah. And the two can never reconcile with each other. Mm. They can never take each other out. Yeah. No amount of wonderful little kittens will ever make Auschwitz go away. Yeah, right. But that also, and the, but that it's somehow being able to bear both. Yeah. Is the deal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, most definitely. Which is hard. I'm not. It's it's easy to say that, and it's harder to do. <laughs> this has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a five-star rating. And feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com. Dude, I I had we'll talk about existential pain. I had two slices of deep dish pizza yesterday at a Super Bowl party. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it was like stuffed, sick stuffed.